If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of James. James chapter 2. I forgot to write down the page number, but if you have one of the Bibles, I believe it's page 1114, but I could be wrong. 13? I think we got past 13. (laughs) I think we turned the page. Thank you, Donald. Um, The title that is there in your bulletin is Justified by Works. Let me give you some alternate titles that didn't make the cut. From shortest to longest. One would be Show Me. Another title would be Prove It. Another title could be Talk is Cheap. Another one could be Put Your Money Where Your Mouth Is. Another one could be You Can Talk to Talk, But Can You Walk the Walk. And then my favorite, Taken modified from the great 80s movie Top Gun your supposed faith is writing checks that your lack of works can't cash thank you for that laugh Joshua (laughs) Um, James chapter 2 and we are in verses 14 through 26 again we began last week looking at this passage of scripture which is probably the most discussed portion of the book of James and it's also probably the passage of scripture that gives us the heartbeat of James uh, most clearly. So we've seen throughout this this book, this letter, that James is at pains to show us that those who have been truly changed by the gospel will be changed in such a way that their lives are marked by good works. So if, if we have come to be children of God through faith in Jesus, the Lord of glory, then we will grow and we will mature and we will produce fruit specifically to James, for James, that looks like concern for the needy, it's going to look like a controlled tongue, and it's going to look like a commitment to holiness. So we will be changed. And here in verses 14 through 26 of chapter 2, he's showing us that there is a kind of faith that is proven to be false faith because it doesn't overflow in deeds of love and holiness and obedience, a, a kind of faith that talks the talk but doesn't walk the walk. A faith that we said last week is useless and dead. I tried to clarify last week that the question is not whether or not faith is sufficient to save, but rather what is the nature of saving faith? What does, what does saving faith look like? And in answering that question, James first shows us what false faith looks like. And we saw this last week, but let me recap. He begins in verse 14, he asks a couple of questions. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? What what good is that? And he's showing us that, that a faith that does not overflow in good deeds is dead and it's useless. It's no good for anyone and it's no good for the person who holds to it. In verses 15 and 16, he then illustrates with this image of a brother or sister who comes in who is poorly clothed and lacks daily food, and we simply say to them, go in peace, be warm, and be filled, and do nothing for their physical needs. And he says, what good is that? So this kind of supposed faith that sees a person in need and offers only words and does nothing about it, he says that that is dead, it's worthless faith, and it's of no benefit to anyone. They say, summarizes, so faith by itself, verse 17, if it does not have works, is dead. Then we saw in 18 and 19 that, that he's linking true faith and works. 
that he's saying that these two things, faith and works, are inextricably linked, that you can't have one without the other. If it's true faith, it will have works. If it's false faith, that's proven by the fact that it has no works. And he, in fact, drives this home by saying that even demons have a kind of faith. They believe in the unity of God. They even know who Jesus is. But that's not saving faith, because it doesn't overflow in deeds of love. You can have a belief that assents to certain facts about God's nature that will never save you, because it's not linked with these good works. So that's last week. We're going to pick up then in verse 20 through 26, and James is going to give us two examples of true faith from the Old Testament. And from these two examples, we're going to be shown that what true faith is. So he's been talking about what false faith is, and now he's going to sort of shift and say, and this is what real faith, true faith, looks like. That, And he does that through two examples. It's the example of Abraham and the example of Rahab. So I want to read James 2. We've summarized verses 14 through 19. And so I'll just pick it up in verse 20, and we're going to seek to answer the question, what is true faith? And I don't have a main idea for you at the beginning. We're going to work into that. So in answering this question, what is true faith, we are eventually going to root down to the big idea of this passage. But look at verse 20 with me of James 2. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith, apart from works, is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works? when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, that he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. There's a great summary of the whole passage there in verse 26. Faith apart from works is dead. That's a clear and very sobering statement to us. Now, if you were to read this passage a few times, and maybe you even caught it just in this one reading, that you would see a key phrase. And the key phrase is justified by works. You look in verse 21. It says, There was not Abraham our father justified by works. You skip down into verse 25. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works? And then right in the middle, at the core of this passage is that statement that always throws me off whenever I'm reading scripture. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. What does James mean when he says that a person is justified by works? I think that is one, if not the key question to answer if we're going to have any hope of understanding these verses, maybe even understanding the whole book of James. And so we want to ask that question first before we start to define what true faith is. So if you're taking notes, you might just write as a first heading, justified by works. Let's figure out what that means. Justified by works. A key word in that phrase, the key word, is obviously justified. thought it was going to be by, but no, it's justified. <laughs> justified. Most often when we see that, that word in Scripture, it's 
from the pen of Paul. And Paul is talking about justification as being declared righteous before God. It's a, a legal standing of being right before God. Because of our sin, God has judged, God will judge us, but because of faith in Christ, He makes us justified, makes us righteous before God's sight. And it comes through faith in Christ alone. The key passage is Romans 3, 21 through 26. And it's worth reading that in full. So let me read Romans 3, 21 through 26. Paul writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as an atoning sacrifice by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Not sure if there's any, this would rival other passages of scriptures for being densely packed with so much truth. But what Paul wants us to see here is the glorious truth that God in Christ has remained righteous while also purchasing our salvation for us. He is just and he also justifies us. He says it elsewhere like this, it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. And that's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. That's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We are sinners, every single one of us. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And if we are to be made right before God, it will be not because we have done enough good deeds, not because we've coupled our deeds together with faith. We are justified by faith alone in Christ alone, not by works of the law. So later this morning, we will take the bread and we will take the cup, and our hope is not in that act. Our hope is not in those elements. Rather, they are tangible reminders of the fact that Christ was crucified. He was broken for our sins. He was raised again for our justification. Our hope of salvation is found in trusting that Jesus has died, that Jesus has paid the penalty for my sin, that he lived a life of perfection, and he credits that to me. And that is a wonderful, life-changing truth. So I say all that, and then we ask, is that what James is talking about when he says we are justified by works? Because the same word can have different meanings depending on context, right? A foot can be a part of your body, or it can be a unit of measurement. Duck can be an animal, or it could be a command. Uh, a dog barks, and a tree has bark. So justification can mean something different depending on the context. And if James is speaking of justification in the same way that Paul is, then they are definitely in conflict if it means the same thing. But James, I firmly believe, holds to the same doctrine of justification by faith alone that Paul holds to. And so when James talks about justification by works here, he's not speaking of being declared righteous before God. Rather, he's primarily speaking, I think, of being justified, of being vindicated 
in the eyes of others as a person of true faith. He's saying if we claim to have faith in Christ, if we claim to be children of God through trusting in what Jesus has done, then we have to prove it by what we do. Because the nature of saving faith is that it overflows in works. And those works justify our faith. They prove that the faith is true and it's real. James is saying, show me. Show me that you really have faith. Prove it. I'm reminded of the miracle. We talked about this in small group the other night. The miracle where Jesus says to the man who's lowered on the mat, your sins are forgiven. And then he says, what's easier for me to say? Your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk? The answer is it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because no one knows if that's true or not. But if Jesus says, take up your bed and walk, and the guy doesn't do it, then we know that he's not a real teacher. So he says, take up your bed and walk to prove, to verify, to justify that he has the right to say your sins are forgiven. He proves that he has that power. And James is again saying, show me, show me that your faith is real by what you do. There's a musical, I don't know if anyone watches or goes to musicals, uh, called My Fair Lady. And there's this character, Freddie, who's speaking beautiful words to a woman named Eliza. And he's declaring his love for her. And she sings to him, words, words, I am so sick of words. (laughs) And then she says, sing me no song, read me no rhyme, don't waste my time, show me. She's saying, you say you love me. I don't want you to talk anymore. Just show me that you love me. When James speaks about justification by works, he's he's saying, show me. Show me your faith. Because if it is real, then it's going to show up in your life in deeds of love and acts of holiness. So the word is different. Justification is being used in a different way. But also the timing is different. Paul is talking about so the, the word's different, the timing is different, meaning that, that Paul is talking about justification as the means that by which we come to faith in Christ. It's, it's how we come to be saved. But James is focused later. He's focused on our walk as Christians. He wants to know what's happening in the life of a professing Christian right now that shows whether he or she is truly justified by faith in some time prior. And so that's why he says justified by work. So it's, it's a timing difference. It's justification by faith. That's how we come to be children of God. And if we are children of God, we will be justified by works. Our faith will be proven to be real by what we do. Works. That's another word that we should probably clarify. Justified by works. For Paul, that's often meant to be keeping the law. But what's James focused on? He's focused on deeds of love. He's focused on love of neighbor, the, the royal law. He says that a faith that does not overflow in deeds of love, which is which is not shown in, in keeping the royal law of loving, loving your neighbor as yourself, that it is not a true faith. It's a dead and a useless faith. So the objection of 19, of, I'm sorry, verse 18, was a person who says, fine, you have deeds, I'll have faith. We'll just split them up. And James is in the midst of arguing that these things can't be separate. You can't, you can't say, I have faith and you have works. You can't separate these two things. Because if faith is genuine, it overflows in deeds of love. Again, we were discussing at small group, and Kelsey offered a helpful illustration that I will hijack now. 
Um, she's with the kids, so she can't. If I mess it up, you know. But here's the question: What what do bakers do? They bake, right? That's what they do. Can someone be a baker and not bake? Well, not over a long period of time. They need to bake at some point. Um, I I was sitting at a coffee shop and I saw a bus go by, and the guy was driving it. What do bus drivers do? They drive buses. Keith is a bus driver. Why? Because he drives a bus. If he didn't drive a bus, he's not a bus driver. This one's for my kids. What do ballerinas do, girls? They dance. They dance ballet. If they don't dance ballet, are they ballerinas? No, they can't be. So, what is a Christian? What do Christians do? I think James is saying they hold to a faith that overflows in love. That's just what Christians do. If a Christian is not a person of faith who shows that forth in deeds of love, then they're not a Christian and their faith is not genuine. Is that perfect? 100% all the time? No. But consistently? Now, James is obviously talking about this, this desire to separate uh, faith and works, because some people must have been saying that. James is coming in, and he's saying, you need to do these deeds of love. And they're saying, James, I have faith, you have works. Okay, I'm content. You do what you do. Uh, and James is saying, no, that, that, that doesn't work. If you have that kind of faith, that's a false faith, and it cannot save anyone. Why would someone want to separate faith and works? Why would this even be an issue? Paul says it's an issue theologically, because he wants to separate faith and works so that people don't think that their salvation is rooted in what they do. But the opponents of James, I think they want to separate faith and works because they don't want to do the works. They don't want to love other people because it's hard. It's for selfish reasons, I think. So they can believe God. They can be saved from the wrath of God. And not have to do all these things that James is telling them to do. They want to have faith, but they don't want it to be difficult. Showing partiality, as James tells them not to do, is easier than rooting out prejudice in my heart. Ignoring people that are needy is a lot easier than having my faith work out to the place that I have to help someone who is needy. As we'll see in chapter 3, it's easier for me to just not really care about what I say than it is to focus on controlling my tongue. And then later again, it's easier to ignore the call to holiness than it is to strive for it. It's easier to just say, well, I have faith. I don't need to have good works. So that's what people are saying. They're saying, fine, James, you do your works of love. You welcome the outcast. You avoid partiality. You help the hungry people. You clothe the naked. You help the homeless. And I'll be on this side of the church holding to my faith. And James says, that is complete foolishness. So he says in verse 20, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person? He doesn't just say it's foolishness. He says, you're a fool. <laughs> if you think that you can do that, you are a fool. And it's not just individual believers, but it's also the church. Hasn't this always been a struggle in the church? Isn't this something that's always pitted against uh, each other in the church we've put doctrine and deeds against one another in the church sometimes because we're trying to hold to to certain doctrines but you know a church may be strong in teaching 
but they're just weak in works. Or a church may be strong in works, and their doctrine just doesn't feel as, it feels a little watered down. And those who do good deeds look at the people with the strong doctrine and say, well, you're just narrow-minded. And the people who hold to the doctrine look at the people who do good deeds and they say, oh, you just, you don't get the truth that we're holding to. And James is saying, you're both fools. (laughs) You can't have true faith if there are not works. The church has to be a place where we hold firmly to faith, where we hold firmly to truth, but that truth transforms us to the place that we, our loving neighbor, we don't show prejudice, that we show concern and care for the poor. Otherwise, it's useless and dead. Why are we even here? So it's not just that it's it's foolishness. Again, he calls this person a fool. And if we doubt what he says, he says, I love the question. It's like a, I don't know, it's like a picking a fight in verse 20. You want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? He's, he's saying, you want some proof? You want some real life examples of people being justified by faith? Fine, let's go. I'll show you some real life examples. And he gives us two witnesses. So there's two witnesses here. That's the That might be your heading for um, verses 20 through 26. Two witnesses. They are Old Testament saints who revealed the genuineness of their faith by their works. And in some ways they couldn't be more different. And in some ways they couldn't be more similar. It begins with Abraham, who is the undisputed father of the faith. And he follows that up with Rahab, a Canaanite prostitute. And both of them show that we are justified by works, as verse 26 says, and that faith apart from works is dead. He's going to show us what true faith looks like. So he calls to the stand first Abraham. He's his first witness. And if you want an example of faith, Abraham's the guy you go to. He talks specifically about the scene in Genesis 22 that Mark read for us earlier of sacrificing Isaac. But he also mentions there um, in verse 23, a verse from from, um, Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now you remember the story of Abraham. Abraham was a um, he was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans. He was a idol worshiper, probably worshipped the moon god there in Ur. But God appears to him, and God makes a covenant with him, and he calls him out of his land, and he makes a promise. He says Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you so many descendants that it'll be more than the sand that's on the seashore. And I will bless all nations through you. What's the problem, though, with that promise? The problem is that Abraham is 75 years old and his wife is barren. How do you have generation after generation of children when you don't have one child? And so the promise comes again in chapter 15. That's The first one is in chapter 12. But then God promises that he's going to give Abraham a son in Genesis 15. And after making that promise, we are told that Abraham believed. Abraham believed what God said. Did he believe perfectly? No. Abraham's story is of growth and faith. It's of ups and downs. It's of valleys and peaks. But 25 years later, after he first that statement is there, he believed God. God did what he said he would do. Sarah has a son named Isaac. 
laughter because Sarah laughed at the thought of having a child. The fact that it took 25 years and then they finally had this son makes Genesis 22 all the more difficult. This is the son of promise. And we're told in Genesis 22 that God tested Abraham and he said to him, Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, son of promise, take him up to the mountain and sacrifice him there. God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, to, to cut off the line of blessing, the one that he's been waiting for, his, his own son. What would you do? I think I often look and say, poor Isaac, but I also look and say, Abraham, this man loves his son. And God is telling him to kill his son. And what does Abraham do? He goes. He obeys. He takes Isaac to the mountain, and he's ready to offer him to the Lord. Hebrews tells us that he believed that the Lord, if he killed Isaac, would raise him from the dead, because he knew that that was the son. But God stops him. And you remember what he says? Now I know, Abraham, now I know that you fear me. Now I know that you have faith, that you believe. Of course, God already knew that, right? Because God knows all things. But we're given this example of Abraham to show that true faith is revealed by what we do. How do we know Abraham was a man of faith? You could wipe out everything else, and if all you had is Genesis 22, you would say, what a man of faith, that he trusted God. He believed. I think we see from this example, and we'll see from Rahab too, that as we try to define what true faith is, it's this. True faith reveals itself in bold, self-sacrificing obedience. I'll say that again. True faith. We want to define that. True faith. What is it? True faith reveals itself. It's shown in bold, self-sacrificing obedience. What greater act is there? Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son because of his faith in God. It's true of Rahab too. Not just Abraham, but Rahab. Rahab was willing to sacrifice herself. You can read about Rahab in Joshua chapter 2 this afternoon, and you can read the conclusion after um, the children of Israel take city of Jericho, but the, the spies came to Jericho, and they're told the ruler finds out that they're there. They must have not been very good spies. They, <laughs> they knew they were there, and they heard they're at Rahab's house. So a couple of the, the king's men come, and they say, where are the guys at? Rahab says, I saw them, but they're not here anymore, when in reality she had hidden them, and she fed them. Why? Why would, why would Rahab put her neck on the line for these guys that she just met. Why in the world would she do that? We're told in Joshua 2 it's because she'd heard. She'd heard about this God who separated the Red Sea and she believed. We're told that she believed that he was the God of heaven above and of earth beneath. What a simple statement of faith. I believe that he is the God of heaven above and of earth beneath. And based on that faith, she hides these spies. She risks her life. She shows it in bold, self-sacrificing obedience. And that simple faith shows, or that that act of bold, self-sacrificing obedience shows that she had true, real faith. So do we believe God? Are we true followers of Christ? Then it's going to show itself in bold acts of self-sacrifice for the good of others and for the glory of God. 
of God. Jesus himself is always the greatest example, and he exemplifies perfect faith in the Father. He had faith that led him all the way to the point of dying for the good of others. Jesus is the ram that was caught in the thicket. Jesus is the sacrifice. And when the moment came where Abraham was told, wait, stop, the Father did not say stop, and Jesus was crucified for us, for our sakes. He is the ultimate example of bold, self-sacrificing obedience out of love for others. And he had true faith. As you think on that, just step into this, uh, verses 22 and 23. Abraham, James is going to define this phrase again, justified by works. There's three phrases in 22 and 23. If you have a Bible, look at them. The first one here is you see that faith was active along with his works. That's the first phrase. So Abraham's faith was active with his works. The works flowed from and were fueled by his faith. They're linked together. That's the first phrase. Second phrase, and faith was completed by his works. His faith was completed by his works. So faith is lacking something without works. It's incomplete. I'm reminded of where Paul says that we fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And the thought there isn't that Christ's suffering lacks saving power in the same way that faith doesn't lack saving power, but rather in that context it's that the visible display of the love of Christ shows in a tangible way the suffering. That when we suffer for others, we show the suffering of Christ. And here, faith is not lacking saving power, but it's lacking visible display. It needs to be seen. So Abraham completes, he fills up what is lacking in his faith by showing it. And then the next phrase, you see, uh, I'm sorry, um, and the scripture was fulfilled. Meaning that, that Abraham proves that what was said about him in chapter 15, Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness, that that was a fact. He proves it, he fulfills it, in chapter 22 by doing and obeying what God says. And so he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then the phrase that struck me as I was reading through is right there at the end of 23, we have the quote, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then what's it say? And he was called friend of God. It feels out of place to me. And I was trying to think, what's the point of that? And I think it's this. As we think about true faith, true faith is not only revealed in these bold, self-sacrificing obedience, but true faith is rooted in a relationship with God. True faith is rooted in a relationship. If faith is, is just believing a set of doctrines then how would that lead to self-sacrificing deeds of love? If salvation is just some sort of transaction between us and God, like buying a a pack of gum, then that's going to make us separate faith and works, because we're going to get what we want. Well, I got salvation, so I don't need to do anything else. But salvation, it's, it's not a transaction. It's the forming of a new relationship. True faith overflows in deeds of love for others because at its core, there is a deep love for God. There's a deep gratitude to Him. There's a deep affection for Him. He is our Father. He is our friend. 
course we will obey. Of course we will show love. You know, the great fear of this passage is that people, it will lead people to say that their salvation is based on deeds rather than by faith. And that is a true danger. But there's another danger, and here's the other danger. It's the danger of saying that my salvation is based on some sort of historical decision and my present life shows no fruits of love whatsoever. And I think that I'm saved because of some past faith that has no present evidence in my life. That is dangerous. It's the danger of convincing ourselves that if we know a few things about God, that's enough to save us. But a decision from the past, or some sort of bare mental assent to a few facts about who God is or who Jesus is, it's not enough to save us. You know, some people come to faith in Christ out of fear. Fear of hell. Fear of punishment. Fear of God himself. And as I read scripture, there is reason to fear. God is a a God who has indignation every day. And God has wrath against our sin. And the judgment of God is a very real thing. And there are eternal consequences for rejecting Jesus. But here's what else I see in this passage, is that the demons know that. The demons know who God is, and what are they doing? They're shuddering. They're afraid too. In contrast to the demons, what does Abraham do? Abraham believes God, believes God, and is he just filled with fear? There's an element of fear. That's what it says there, that God understood that Abraham feared him. But he also says he's the friend of God. There's, there's a friendship with God. There's a relationship. And true faith goes beyond fear into friendship with God himself. Faith, I think, can be awakened by a fear of God. But it's always, if it's real faith, going to move into friendship with him. That's what makes a child of God different than a demon. A demon can believe who God is, and they are trapped in fear. But a child of God sees who God is, is able to fear, but then sees what Christ has done and is brought into relationship. And we become a friend of God. I think that's what makes works true and genuine and not a means of seeking salvation. Friends don't seek to earn each other's affections. If I'm friends with you, I'm not doing good works so that you'll like me. If I do, I'm, I, you know, that's my fault. <laughs> but the relationship is established. The deeds of love for the other person, or in the other person's name, they, they're pure, and they are simply, they, they prove that there's a relationship there. They prove that there is love there. So let me summarize. What is true faith? Just putting those two thoughts together, maybe. True faith is rooted in love and evidenced by self-sacrificing, God-glorifying deeds of love. True faith is rooted in love, the love of relationship with the Father. And it's evidenced, it's shown by self-sacrificing, God-glorifying deeds of love. It's a decent summary. There's a lot in here, though, to, to grasp onto. This is a supernatural thing, though. Only those who are transformed by grace, who are made 
children of God and friends of God will walk in this way. God's the only one that can change us. Let me give you one final thought, though. And it's this, that the invitation to be transformed by God in this way, through faith, is open to everyone. The invitation to be transformed by God's grace is open to everyone. I think that has to be part of the reason that that James chooses Abraham and Rahab. Yes, they were both idol worshippers, but any self-respecting Jewish person would not put Abraham and Rahab on the same plane. I mean, Abraham is is patriarch. He's the the forefather of the faith. And Rahab, I mean, we're thankful for her, but she was a Canaanite and she was a, a prostitute. And James is saying, listen, they both had faith that showed itself in deeds. And they were both children of God. How different they are, a patriarch and a, and a prostitute. And yet how similar. They were both pagan idol worshippers until God invited them into relationship. They're both transformed by God. They both show forth true faith. They're both ancestors in the line of Jesus himself, if you read through the book of Matthew. And we are just like them. Apart from the amazing grace of God, we would be lost forever, no matter who we are in this world's eyes. But he invites us to be people. He invites all people to be his, his friends through faith. And if we believe, then it's going to overflow in self-sacrificing, God-glorifying deeds of love. And deeds of love that show no prejudice. Because we realize that the invitation is open to all, and it's all of grace. And if we are transformed to do good deeds, those good deeds aren't earning us that grace. They are evidence of the fact that we have been radically transformed, and anyone can be transformed by God's grace. Because it's faith. And faith at its core is just saying, I can't. I can't do it myself. But God, I need you. I hope you hear that, especially if you are apart from Christ. Oh, the invitation to be transformed, to be brought into relationship, is open to everyone. The only thing that you need is to recognize that you are in need. The only thing that you need is to see that, that you can't do it yourself. That there are no good deeds that you can do to earn that salvation. If we would humble ourselves and repent and turn by faith to Christ, He would change us. He will make us His friend. He will make us part of His family. And He will allow us, our lives, to overflow in deeds of love.